We didn't tell anybody he was born. Um, we were ashamed of uh, the way everything happened. I was very embarrassed. I had a tremendous amount of guilt because I felt like I failed him. You know, it wasn't something like genetic or something that I, um, you know, just, I mean, it was something I could have prevented. I just didn't know about it. And most pregnant women have never heard of this. Um, so my way of coping with challenging situations at the time was to withdraw. And I was really good at it. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Jacqueline Greenberg, a mother of three and a writer. Welcome, Jackie. Hi, Ronit. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy that you were able to join me, and I'm so looking forward to learning more about your story. I've been reading your articles and finding the information you offer about raising differently able children so useful, and I want to just kind of start at the beginning, uh, you know, how you were as a new mom the first time and how many kids you thought you would have. I was an extremely nervous mom the first time. Um, my daughter was always very feisty, um, but I was happy she was that way because I knew that it would serve her well as she got older, uh, but amazing. I mean, she was so amazing. I wanted I wanted 20 more of her. I was just so in love and um, so grateful for her and so amazed at the motherhood experience that um, growing up an only child, uh, I just wanted to to have more. And I think my goal originally, I guess if you asked me when I was younger, was I wanted four children mm-hmm. um, to make up for the small family that I grew up with. Um, extremely close with my mom, uh, but it was for the most part, the two of us uh, until I met my husband in high school. Okay. So you've been with your husband for a really long time. We dated for nine years and we've been married for 15. Wow. So when you had your daughter, did you go back to work pretty quickly after that or how much time were you able to take off? Um, I did. I took about, I think it was about 17 weeks. Um, you know, I had some paid and some unpaid. I was working at a corporate job in uh, corporate tax. I have, uh, my accounting degree, CPA and master's in tax. And I had, you know, built up a career and, and, um, you know, finished my degree in taxation and then was getting older and started our family. And, and, uh, you know, I grew up with a single mother who did it all and saw no reason why I couldn't do it all too, especially since I had been planning for it for so long. Right. Uh, right. I have a very supportive husband. He, you know, he and I were similar salary points and similar work schedules, and we were able to juggle it. Actually, looking back, things were almost perfect when my when I had my first child because I used the daycare at my job, um, and so I could visit her at lunch. We we would actually commute together, the three of us, Aww. and we would um, drop her off at the daycare together, and then. My husband actually kept his car in the parking lot there overnight and then would sneak out the back gate, which was 
I mean, he wasn't sneaking, it was open. <laughs> and he would go to his corporate campus, which was 10 minutes away. And then he would come back later. You know, one of us would always get to the daycare first at the end of the day, but we would wait for the other one. And it's kind of a fun, when I think back to new parenthood too, it's really, I don't think I, I mean, I knew I felt very different in my life. It was such a different experience than I'd ever had, of course, before, but coming, thinking back on it now, it was very uh, sweet and, and almost precious to have that time with the first child and the couple and sort of acclimating to parenthood. Yeah, it's very different with one than with more than one. Now, when when you you said a little bit earlier that you were sort of a tense mom, of a tense first time mom, which I completely relate to. I mean, I'd love to talk to the moms who are chill on their first kid, but I was really type A. So, but when you when you <laughs> yeah, think back too. to that mom, I mean, you can see it clearly now. Mm-hmm. Do you also see like what are the other feelings you have about that early mothering time for yourself compared? to now, because of course I know where we're going in the conversation, but what, what are your thoughts about that older time? Yeah, I, I think I thought that what I was dealing with was so difficult. Um, you know, it's funny you asked me that because I have been working on my memoir a lot. And in the beginning, I do a lot of comparing to my first experience, because that was all I had to go by the the delivery, the, you know, the discharge, when I was leaving the hospital, just everything was um, so polar opposite. And um, I was so nervous. And, um, you know, I guess the type where I just wanted to do everything myself, I wanted it done my way. Um, I don't fault myself, I guess. But, but yeah, I mean, looking back, the adjustment was a big adjustment, but um, it was nothing. Yeah, it was nothing in comparison to what I was headed towards for sure. Um, but I don't fault people, you know, any new parent. It's just it's and I think the later the older you are, the harder it is. I think if I had become a new mother, at say 25 or, or younger, it would have been one thing. But, you know, and I also think because I had been with my husband for so long, it made a huge difference. We we were married nine, uh we were dating for 9 years and married for 5 by the time we had our daughter so we we had our routine you know we had our things we liked to do and the friends we liked to see and and you know um you know i was curious about your husband and i wonder in just a, a few words can you was he a calming influence was he as revved up as you were he he's always been um an extremely calm person so it 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 drew me to him to begin with um, it's funny because I laugh at him now. We've almost flip flopped. Um, he gets, he gets worked up about stuff that, that things that don't bother me because my perspective is so different at this point. But, um, yeah, he's always been very, very laid back and, and, and I liked that about him to begin with. So when, when we had our daughter, he, he was, um, you know, I'd get stressed and I, you know, she, he, you know, she'd have a fever and I'd be all nervous and he would just lie with her on his chest all night and be fine with it. And I would, you know, I don't, I don't deal very well without sleep. And, you know, he, he just always has my back and, uh, he's really great. He's really great that way. Um, that is, that is really lucky to have the counterbalance. Yeah. Yeah. So, so can you, can you, okay. So you're ready to have your second child Mm -hmm. and I guess, I know you've probably told this story a bunch, Mm -hmm. but can you talk a little bit about, your your 
the end of your pregnancy and what ensued with your second. What happened? Yeah. So my pregnancy was fine. Um, my 20 week ultrasound, I, I didn't have any issues to the point where, um, you know, that's the full anatomy scan. Um, the, the ultrasound tech who was doing the ultrasound after she was done, she let some intern fool around. Oh, you know, this is a good, you know, a good way to learn because everything was fine. Um, and then I didn't have any checkups except towards the end I had bi-weekly, you know, as you, you go see the obstetrician bi-weekly for, you know, they measure your stomach, make sure that baby is growing at the right pace. Um, and so I went at 32 weeks and I was measuring about 30 centimeters and you're supposed to be within two centimeters either way. So 30 to 34 was acceptable. And then I went at 34 weeks and I was still measuring 32 centimeters. And he said, you know, you know, I'm not really worried. You're small. You make small babies. Um, but, you know, sometime in the next two weeks, go and get it checked out. Well, given that I'm type A, mm -hmm. I got an appointment the next day. Um, and that that's the drop into my book. Um, <laughs> I left mm -hmm. my computer running at two o'clock for a 215 appointment down the street. Uh, thankfully my husband met me there and the ultrasound tech was, you know, doing her thing while we were jabbering away about nothing. And all of a sudden I look up and she doesn't look right. And she says, hang on and gets a doctor. And the doctor comes in and looks at me and says, um, your baby has, your baby's very small, has fluid in his brain and an enlarged heart. And I don't know if he's going to survive, go to the hospital now and deliver him. And that was the first time that I found out there was anything wrong. So I was 34 weeks and five days pregnant. Um, we left the ultrasound office, got in the car, drove the mile down the road to the hospital, um, walked in, you know, the nurses were waiting. Uh, I walked into the operating room. My daughter was a C-section too. So uh, it was vaguely familiar, but the attitude in the room was very different that time. And there were twice as many doctors and nurses. When you left the doctor's office knowing with this new information, I mean, I, I wonder, have you, have you been able to look at yourself in, um, in, like, remember this in any way that doesn't hurt you? Like at this point, when you think about the news, getting the news and the journey to the hospital? Um, I, I really don't feel it anymore. I've told, I've told it and written about it so many times that it doesn't phase me anymore. It's, it's almost a, it's almost a story, just a story to me because it's, it's surreal. It's just such a bizarre story, the way everything happened. Um, you know, walking out of that building, I didn't, I didn't believe it. I think it's, you know, when you get such shocking news, your brain just can't, you just can't wrap your head around it. It's so overwhelming. So I really just didn't even believe it. I walked out thinking that's not possible. Um, you know, and then I went to the hospital and, um, you know, the, the, the atmosphere in the operating room was just so different. I mean, the first time the doctors were 
you know, singing to songs overhead and making cracking jokes and taking bets on the weight of my baby. And, and, you know, then I got to see her and, you know, we got to take pictures with her and then they, you know, and then my husband fall, you know, left and then, you know, they let, I'm there in the end, you know, getting stitched back together and all, but, um, you know, it was very light and comfortable this time. It was just so serious and it felt like, you know, 10 doctors and nurses just, I didn't even get to hear him cry, just scooted him and my husband out the door. And, um, and I think I was left there with one doctor and a nurse just crying and nobody knew what to say to me. Um, but at that point I still didn't really understand what had happened or what was wrong. The next morning we found out that I caught a virus when I was pregnant. Um, and that they wouldn't know the extent of the damage for, for weeks. Were you in the hospital with the baby for a while? Um, he was in the NICU. Mm -hmm. He was, um, two pounds and 12 ounces when he was born mm -hmm. at almost 35 weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, so he was in the NICU hooked up to everything. And I was just in a regular labor and delivery room, which felt horrible. And so, uh, the first time I got to see him was midnight that night. I went up cause I insisted on seeing him, but, um, you know, I got a quick look, but didn't feel well for obvious reasons. Uh, just physically, my body had taken a, a toll. So the next morning we got more information. They, they diagnosed him. He, um, CMV is not terribly uncommon, but symptomatic CMV is, um, and is CMV the virus? Yeah. CMV is short for cytomegalovirus. Um, I actually laughed, um, I don't even know if I laughed out loud, but I laughed in my head when I heard what happened because I'm such a neurotic person and such a clean person. Uh, I couldn't imagine that that's, that that was what happened. I mean, of all things. Mm, happened, a virus. So it's an airborne type of virus that your it's body It's an airborne takes virus. Yep. Yeah. And then it, it, it immediately affects the baby. It doesn't always. Um, it can. Uh, um they told me I was struck by lightning that, you know, what happened, it's, it's not the extent that it happened to my son is not, I guess, the more common um, impact, but I've met plenty of people that it has happened to since. So my understanding is that people with an immune system, um, they have very light reactions to it, but uh, my fetus or anybody without an immune system or anybody that's immunocompromised, um, they're the ones that are the hardest hit. So because I was pregnant and had a fetus that didn't have an immune system, um, he, you know, he took the brunt of it. Um, I, I do remember almost feeling like I had a, a monotype sickness, but I, I was working full time and had a toddler and was pregnant and just thought I was tired. Of course. Yeah. There's so lot. many things that are going on anyway. Yeah. So, so there you are and your baby's in the NICU and how long did he stay there? He stayed about seven weeks. Mm -hmm. um, but we didn't get an official diagnosis. Uh, I mean, we got the cytomegalovirus diagnosis initially and they said that all of his physical symptoms would subside. So he had a rash, which is called petechiae and 
he was jaundiced and his liver function was ridiculous. Um, I think it's supposed to be under one and it was 23, his bilirubin. Um, so he had all these physical symptoms, but they said they wouldn't know if the virus impacted his brain until later. And that typically, um, like the body will, the rest of the body will be impacted to protect the heart and the brain. So the hope was that the rest of his body took the brunt of it and that his heart and brain had been spared. Um, so that whole summer, I basically lived in the NICU. Um, we still did our daily commute to daycare and I dropped my daughter off in the morning and then drove, my husband drove me around the corner to the hospital and dropped me off. And I would spend about 10 hours there and I would, you know, pump with the breast hospital grade breast pump. And I would, you know, I was giving him breast milk and, would sit and um, kangaroo sleep with him. I mean, this was after a couple of weeks. In the beginning, it was, you know, let's get him out of the incubator and let's get, he was always breathing on his own, but, um, you know, there are certain criteria to get him out of the incubator. They started him on an antiviral medication. They, um, none of the doctors there had any really hands-on experience with CMV. So they had to call around to other hospitals um, who told them to to put him on an antiviral to stop the virus from causing any further complications. Um, he saw an eye doctor and had his hearing screen and did all that stuff. Um, and everything seemed to be going okay. So we were optimistic. Uh, and then I guess towards the end of, so he was born, he was born at the end of, I mean, the middle of June. So towards the end of July, a, a neurologist came in the room and said, you know, we're going to scoot him upstairs for an MRI, brain MRI. You know, I'll have him back in an hour. Don't worry about it. You know, we had a casual chat. She lives in town and she said he looks good given everything. And again, I was still optimistic. Um, so a little while later, they bring him downstairs and she comes in the room and she and another neonatologist come and sit down. And I looked at my husband. And I said, this is not good. They don't sit down. Um, so she sat down and she said, um, the virus impacted his brain. It stopped developing around 30 or 32 weeks. They don't know enough about the brain. They don't know. Um, the brain makes folds as it gets, you know, more com complex later in pregnancy and they don't, and that didn't happen. Um, they don't know what he'll be capable of. They don't know if he'll walk or talk. Um, then, you know, it kind of got into a little bit more of a serious tone, you know, would he survive, you know, will he survive? And um, they said sucking and swallowing is a reflex at birth and that it's something that could deteriorate as he gets older, but um, they really didn't know. Um, so all of this then led to a palliative care meeting in the hospital with a whole room full of people. All of our parents came. Um, you know, our pediatrician, the, our favorite NICU nurse, some of the neonatologists. Um, we had a three hour meeting kind of trying to decide what the plan was going forward. And you know, they had been poking his foot to take blood every other day because he wasn't gaining weight. They tried everything to get him to gain weight, MCT oil and all these different types of weight gainers. Um, you know, every morning I came in, I would be excited if he gained an ounce or two overnight. Um, 
And so they had to give him a couple blood, tra- they had to give him a couple platelet transfusions and then they had to give him a couple blood transfusions because babies don't make their own blood until they're six or eight weeks old. Um, so at that point we just said, you know, let's just, this is enough. Let's stop torturing him. Let's just, you know, they did all of this stuff for all of this time. Let's just, let's just see what happens. You know, let's, there was nothing, no reason to intervene in such an intense way anymore. He was, he was stable and doing his thing. Um, so, so we kind of took a break with it. in in some sense, I guess I needed a, I needed a mental break. Um, I actually walked out of the room and threw the breast pumps in the garbage. I was so discouraged. Um, and you know, I took a mental break uh, to try and, you know, I didn't visit every day. I, I, uh, you know, I still visited, but I wasn't there the way that I had been. I I just needed some time to regroup and gather my thoughts. When, when this was happening, did you, it sounds like you had support in the palliative care meeting. Did you have, uh, com- community support and support from your friends? Did you, did you feel that people knew how to interact with you or help you at this time? We didn't tell anybody he was born. Um, we were ashamed of, uh, of the way everything happened. I was very embarrassed. I had a tremendous amount of guilt because I felt like I failed him. You know, it wasn't something like genetic or something that I, um, you know, just, I mean, it was something I could have prevented. I just didn't know about it. And most pregnant women have never heard of this. Um, so my way of coping with challenging situations at the time was to withdraw. And I was really good at it. Um, the only people that knew that he was born early were our parents. And um, they even struggled to help us because I couldn't, I struggled to keep them updated with the news. There was so much new information every day, so much medical jargon, so much um, just day-to-day changes in his health. I could barely wrap my head around it, much, much, much less repeat it. Um, I guess the only people that really kind of knew more about what was going on was the daycare because I was still going there often. Um, So I had a couple of friends there, but I really... I mean, I know it makes total sense that you would feel that way, but I, I didn't realize how much you were blaming yourself. Yeah. Um, that spiraled into about a three or four year depression. I did not feel okay again for a long time. I just beat myself up for years, um, for that. That was very hard. It's even though you knew or maybe do you know now that logically there's no way you could have, there's nothing you could do? Logically. I mean, you know, it's a very common virus with children. I guess if, um, you know, didn't, didn't go to birthday parties. I don't know. Didn't go to Florida that time. Didn't hug and kiss people when I greeted them. I mean, you know, you could totally relate it to what's going I, This is my worst nightmare, what we're living in. Yeah. I bet. Um, this pandemic, you know, it's just, uh, you know, the anxiety, the anxiety when I was pregnant with my third, I, I wanted to wrap myself in bubble wrap on the couch and not move. I just didn't <laughs> want to, I stopped 
I stopped. I've been social distancing for eight years. <laughs> I um, you know, I stopped hugging and kissing people, you know, cousins and people that I don't see often, you know, I would, I would kind of, they would go to kiss me on the cheek and I would wrap my arms around them and turn my head. You know, I, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, I stopped making that close contact, um, with anybody. I stopped sharing food with my family. I would go to, I would go to birthday parties and watch these pregnant mothers finish their children's pizza and cringe. Mm-hmm. So when you were pregnant with your third one, you were, would you say you were hypervigilant? I was ridiculously vigilant. I, I did then what people are doing today. I, right, right. I mean, anybody that came, I did, I did decide to keep working. I needed it for my sanity. My daughter was very happy at the daycare and, um, and my amazing daycare was able to take Henry. I was terrified to be home alone with him. I, I just, I did not know how to deal with a, baby that was going to be so different. Um, it was just too much for me. So they were amazing. And they, they took him, um, in the beginning, I really didn't think I was going to be able to, you know, I read all these stories of all these mother, you know, these children that have doctor's appointments and therapy appointments and all these things. And I thought, Oh my, I cannot, I cannot take that on. I have a full-time career and a toddler and a newborn. And how am I going to do that too? Um, so I basically said to myself, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. Um, I'll put him at daycare the way that I was planning. Um, they were wonderful there. They were able to provide for him at the time, the way that I just emotionally couldn't. And, um, I needed that distance. And then (laughs) I went back to work the first, the first day I dropped him off, I went back to work and it was after 10 weeks. He, he had only been, he was only here for 10 weeks. And I went to my desk and I sat down and I cleared out my old emails and I looked at my computer and I said, I can't do this. I can't not help this now five pound baby who's sitting in a crib in the next building. Um, so I picked up the phone and I called early intervention and I called, I think, a hematologist because he was having clotting issues still. And I called a neurologist and, oh, a gastroenterologist for his weight and made appointments, put appointments on the calendar and felt a little bit better and and started building from there. I mean, by the time by the time he was three, he had 15 therapy appointments a week. When he was growing, was there eye contact? And once he started to feel better physically, was he, I know he has, to, you know, in, the inability to talk, right? Yeah. And, and he can't walk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he didn't look, he didn't look at us. He didn't look at us for about the first year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's funny because again, I'm, I'm in the process of, of writing this and there were all these, there were all these different times where I, um, you know, I guess rose to the occasion and then fell back again. And I remember picking him up at the daycare sometimes, um, you know, five o'clock and I would get there and he would have all this energy. All of a sudden this kid that like, you know, he didn't, he didn't fuss for a bottle and he didn't fuss if he was dirty and he didn't look at you, you know, he was just kind of, was you know, kind of there um, all of a sudden he'd start moving like, you know, and, 
it was almost like I was watching these puzzle pieces in his brain connect at various times throughout the day, and then it would go away again. And every time I went to a new doctor, somehow I always expected them to be able to know that and to see that. And they can't, obviously. You're going to take your child to a doctor, and they're going to see what's right in front of them at that moment, which is most likely a nervous child at the doctor. Um, And then I had to learn that I have to explain these situations where I see this child who's got more there and is, you know, just maybe not capable of showing it. I I realize now um, he really, his body was almost born in like a negative I don't even know how to explain it, but um, like his nervous system in my mind was kind of like in a negative state because um, he had sensory issues with, you know, light and cold and and different things that, um, you know, most babies can tolerate. And he's grown out of them over time. Um, he, He couldn't, I'll never forget the day that he first looked left and right. I mean, he was maybe four. Um, You know, he just, has very little control over his body, but it doesn't mean that he is not a smart person. Mm, Yes. And also it must be an interesting, well, I guess a lot of us do this with our children, but with you in this situation, it's different because we are with our kids so much and we, we understand a lot of what other people might not notice. And so it sounds to me that was on an even bigger scale for you because you know your kids so well, once you started to accept that you know, and see him, that you could understand all the progress he was making. But it may not seem that way to someone who doesn't know him and know where he's come from. Exactly. And every doctor we would see over the years didn't understand that. And they would say, oh, give me the background. What's the background here? And I'd say, well, he's doing great. (laughs) You should have seen him a year ago. And he just, they didn't understand, they didn't understand it. You know, they, um, nobody really asks me that so much anymore because he's, um, I mean, he's got, yeah, tell full, me what he's like now. Um, well, he's got full control over his, I mean, you know, he's responsive. He's facially responsive. He, he, you know, he's quick to look, he's sassy. I mean, he gives side eye. He, um, you know, when he doesn't, when he doesn't want to do something, he kind of just clams up and, um, like his physical therapist was here today and, he he would move in with this guy. I mean, he's been coming over. He's been he he's been with him since he was ten months old, I think, and um, he just loves him. and And he comes over every time, and he he teases him. He says, oh, "Are you being a turkey for mom again?" And Henry just <laughs>, laughs his face off, like, "Yeah, I am being so bad." And um, you know, and he stretches him, and they play basketball. Now they're playing basketball because um, he was diagnosed with. Crohn's disease on top of everything else this year, which was honestly a blessing because now he's bearing weight and taking steps, um, something I couldn't get him to do for years because I had no idea his stomach was bothering him, but that's another story. Um, so do you mean literally taking, taking footsteps? Yeah. I mean, he can't fully bear weight on his own, but I can let go of him for a few seconds. And yes, he can take reciprocal steps if I like hold his shoulders for him for support. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. And, That's great. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. And um, 
that's, I mean, that's honestly like one of the best things that's happened in 2020, this being diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Um, again, it was like another, is that because you're getting medicine and helping to fortify? Exactly. Exactly. It was another fight. It was another, it was, he's probably been suffering for over two years. Um, you know, he had symptoms two years ago and the doctors just didn't think, Oh, he, you know, it must be part of the brain that, you know, the brain damage is causing issues with his, you know, causing the cerebral palsy, which causes, you know, swallowing issues and this and that. And there's no way that it could be something else. You know, nobody has two things, but that's ridiculous because brain damage aside, he was going to be whatever he was going to be. And maybe he was going to be a child who has Crohn's disease. Um, the brain that, da- you know, the, the virus that I caught that caused brain damage is just crappy luck that did something extra. He's, he's very, um, I mean, he's a very social kid. If he likes you, you know, you get a, you get a smile. If he doesn't, he kind of glares at you. Um, you know, he can be, he can be very vocal. Um, but he can't, he can't, um, he doesn't say any actual words, but he's vocal. So, you know, we know he's very, um, you know, I can't just leave him. Like he, (laughs) he's very fussy about what he wants. This question about, this juxtaposition between relaxing and knowing that there's only so much you can do and trusting the caregivers and the process and all the therapy appointments and everything, but then also knowing that you have to catch these changes and things because who else is going to catch them? Exactly. Right? Exactly. Like the Crohn's disease, you have to advocate for him all the time. It's, I don't know how, how do you know, like, or is it unconscious at this point? How do you know when you can relax and you're okay and when you have to really be on it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think it's just been a learning curve for us. The Crohn's, my husband kind of figured out because uh, he had a symptom um, that my husband noticed and repeatedly brought it up to the doctor. It was, um, he had an abscess that, that, um, would have got, you know, could have really been damaging to his body if we hadn't taken, and he had it, he had it twice. He had two. And then the first one got infected. And at that point, the pediatric surgeon who had to help him with the abscess issues said, okay, this is ridiculous. Something else has to be causing this. And I said, thank you. And, um, and then we actually had to switch gastroenterologist to somebody who was a, a Crohn's specialist. But, you know, it's a real trial and error thing. We've, we've been through four neurologists. Um, I interviewed four orthopedic surgeons before he had hip surgery. Um, you know, it's, you, it's almost like this just mommy gut thing. You, you just kind of, and it's, it's really hard too, because you could spend all day, every day of your entire life trying to find things that you think can be helpful. And it's um, the guilt that I feel when I overlook something. Uh, A couple of years ago, a friend of mine who has a son with some issues started doing a different type of therapy. And when I first heard about it, I thought, how have I not heard about this? And my, my mind got so consumed with researching this thing that I thought I forgot and dropped the ball on. And I felt so guilty and horrible that I, I actually forgot to go to my little one's conference. I, I'm such an organized person. It was so unlike me. And I, I just forgot about it. I got so consumed. And then I she couldn't reschedule for a month and a half. I was so mad at myself. Um, it's just taken me time and years to not get sucked into 
oh, I should have been doing, you know, I should have been doing that. Or, oh, I, you know, what if I had done that? Or, oh, you know, maybe that's the right thing. And it, it's, it's, it's really hard not to. And I feel like it just comes with knowing your kid and maturity and also appreciating and recognizing that life is to be enjoyed too. You can't spend all day, every day in therapy and trying to, um, fix something that maybe isn't fixable in some ways. Um, you have to just be happy together and, 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 and want to do fun things because for so many years I wouldn't go on vacation because I refused to have him miss therapy. I mean, probably three or four years. I, I would not take a vacation because I didn't want him missing a week of, I didn't want him missing a week of anything. I was too scared. He would have a setback. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, well, it's all it's, on your shoulders. Point, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. It's very, it's very scary and overwhelming at this point. I'm like, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, I know. Cause every time I see your posts, you mentioned that you want to go on a vacation. So, um, so in the last, in the last 10 minutes that we have, I want to yeah. pivot a little bit here and, and let's talk about mm-hmm. this proactive, um, this insight that you're offering and all of these articles you're writing, which really for me are so much about advocacy and awareness and, really putting some of the 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 responsibility in people who are not coping with a differently abled child or a family member so you know in the time that we have remaining can you, let me guide you with a couple of questions and you can take it from there but you know what what do you feel is greatly misunderstood or really irritates you about people who who don't know about coping with someone who's differently abled what what irks you it really bothers me when people are uncomfortable um, with different social norms. My, I feel like everybody has like a three second sense of comfort. Like if I go up to you and say, you know, hey, how are you? You know, my name's Jacqueline. It's nice to meet you. And I, I say count to three, you know, three Mississippi. And if the person doesn't respond the way you think they should respond, you're going to you're going to feel uncomfortable. You're going to feel embarrassed. You put yourself out there. They're not responding. This is awkward. Um, Henry can't respond that way. He can't he can't respond as quickly. He shouldn't have to smile if he doesn't want to. You don't always want to smile at somebody. You know, sometimes he just kind of gives somebody the stink eye like, yeah, why should I, you know, it's hard for him to move his body. Why should I make an effort for you? Make it worth my while. Um, so it frustrates me that people don't understand that about him, I guess. I mean, it makes sense that they wouldn't. It's not terribly common. But, um, you know, he is an amazing, smart, fun kid. And I feel like people are missing out by not making, allowing themselves to just be uncomfortable. Um, you know, if they just spend a few minutes trying to under, you know, understanding him a little bit better, you know, if you try and color with him, he gets, he loves to, he's terrible at it, but he loves to try and color. Um, he loves watching Garfield. He loves star Wars. He likes video games. He loves playing basketball. Um, he can catch the ball and let it roll down his legs and he just loves it. Um, and he just waits for you to like toss it back to him and then he wants you to shoot it. Um, you know, he's just like a, he loves to read books. Um, he's a fun kid. And it frustrates me that not enough people 
are comfortable enough with themselves to take the time to get to know him and then they're missing out and then he's missing out on those relationships. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to these interactions or when something like this might happen, now I imagine people who are close to you have it down or you've helped them, but how do you handle that if something is happening in real time and it's starting to really bug you? It doesn't upset me anymore the way it used to. I lead, I just lead by example. I just do whatever it is I was going to do with him. I engage with him the way that I normally would and hope that somebody will, will pick up cues based on what I'm doing. This is how you engage with him. This is how he responds. You know, I'll do hand over hand things with him to include him or he'll just sit on my lap and, and we'll do different things or we'll chat. Um, You know, I've never been much of a baby talker, so I I don't like baby talk. I never did it when my children were little. I can't stand when people try to do that with him or people just ignore him. It's it's really um, it's a shame because for somebody that's not able to move his body well, it, I think, deters him from trying if people end up ignoring him. If people engaged with him more, then he would probably you know, maybe make more of an effort and it would get easier for him because the more he does things, the easier it gets. Um, so that's, that's frustrating. And what are your hopes? What are your hopes for him, for your family, aside from vacation? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I guess I don't really have my only hopes for my family at this point are that we all stay happy and healthy and keep doing what we're doing. I mean, we've gotten to a point where we just have an awesome family dynamic. My other two children are amazing with him. Um, My daughter will carry him around the house or up to their playhouse. Um, My little one will, you know, bring him things. They sit and watch TV with him. They have sleepovers together. I guess I, at this point, I feel like we've just been through so much um, that I just, We've gotten to such a great place. I just want us all to be able to enjoy it together forever. I, I just, um, yeah, I mean, after all the trauma we've been through, um, I just want us to be able to keep going the way we are. When it comes to a health a health and med- medical journey and, you know, advocating for your child or even for yourself, what have you learned or, or what would you tell people uh, is really important when it comes to advocating for themselves? Um, I think it's important to really understand what's happening and not let somebody make assumptions or kind of railroad you one way or the other. Um, in my mind, the best people, and, um, you know, I just had that parents.com um article published, but it was about healthcare providers. It applies to therapists too. I've cycled through so many therapists that just didn't see Henry as a person and only saw his inabilities. Um, The person that comes, his therapist that comes to our house now only sees Henry for Henry. Um, And that's so important for all of us. Um, I just, I guess, making sure that you are spoken to as an equal and that somebody is making sure you really understand what's happening and that you have confidence in what the person is 
telling you that it makes sense to you that they're explaining it the right way you know if you need to go see somebody else see somebody else uh you know we were going to one of the best hospitals for neurology in the country and the woman said um she did a one-hour EEG and she said he's not having seizures and on a referral of a friend I took him to someplace else and she she said I can't tell you anything unless I hook him up to a 24-hour EEG with a video monitor and I said okay so he stayed overnight in the hospital and every time his eyes fluttered which you know, looked like nothing. He was having a seizure. He was having 30 in an hour. Mm. Goodness. And so, um, you know, I just, every professional you deal with is a person who has their own opinions and experiences. They only see things just, just like what you posted today. They only see things from a certain perspective. And if they don't have experience with someone like you or someone like your child, they may miss things, not intentionally. It doesn't mean they're a bad doctor. It just means they're not a good fit for you. And that's okay. It just takes time to find the people and the team that support you. Um, it's hard. We, we have nine, his nine doctors. And I mean, he still rotates his therapists at school, but um, he sees some privately. And um, you just kind of keep moving forward with it. Mm-hmm. And would you say that you're... Are you proud of yourself and, and where you've, like, how, how far you've come? Um, I'm not proud of myself. Um, if you, I guess if you asked me if, you know, I would, everything, I've grown as a person. I'm a completely different person than I was 10 years ago. Um, I'm a stronger person. I'm a more confident person. I don't let little things bother me. I know how to advocate, um, you know, much less sensitive than I used to be. Um, I would, I would give it all, but I feel like it's at the detriment of my son. Um, so I would, I would give back all those lessons if he didn't have any challenges. Um, so I don't like I don't like to say that I'm proud of myself. I guess I like to say that I'm proud of us as a family because the trauma that we went through and the stress that we went through could really I think tear a family apart. It's just intense and it's a lot. And I think I'm lucky that I have such a great husband and such great children that you know we were able to figure it out and navigate through it. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't, I don't like to say that I'm proud of myself because I feel like it's, I'm proud of my son. I'm proud of everything he's overcome. I can't believe what he's like today compared to what he was like, even when he was three and I was picking him up from school, another little boy would be brought out in a stroller and he would be kicking his legs and reaching his arms and you know, screaming for his mom and, and Henry would be wheeled out in a stroller right after him. And he wouldn't even look at me. I mean, I, I didn't know if he knew the difference between being home and and being in school and, you know, comparing that to today, he's a totally different child. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but that's my answer. <laughs> it does. It does. 
No, I appreciate that. So Jackie, where can, where can people find your writing and more about you? And where are you on social media? So the only place that I'm public on social media is Instagram. Um, Jacqueline L. Greenberg on Instagram. And I have a link tree with all of my published essays. I'm on Twitter, but not, you know, not very much. Mm-hmm. Everything's on Instagram. Okay. But if people want to read your articles and find your writing, then definitely go to Instagram. And I'll, okay. And I'll link to that in the show notes and I'll link to that when, when we publicize your episode too. Thank you so much. I'm really glad you were my guest. Thanks for having me. This was uh, quite an experience that we went through. And I, I think for me, the biggest thing is um, I went through such a difficult stage and a difficult time in life regardless of the grief or trauma that somebody goes through, I think it's important to know that there's another side of it. Um, you know, we weren't able to, we didn't, we didn't grieve a death. We grieved in a different way and we're dealing with challenges and struggles every day, which in some ways is in my mind, more challenging. Um, and I remember after three or four years, one day I woke up and I just went, wow, I really want to just participate in life again. I, I think I'm done with this. I want to, it, you know, it's very gradual, up, down, up, down, up, down. But, you know, there were more good days than bad days. And it, it came more and more regularly. And, um, and the feelings became, you know, easier to push off the more I repeated them. I've been repeating these feelings for eight years now, these stories. And it's easier for me to set it aside the more I do it. And, um, you know, I just, I want other people to know that, that that can happen, that you can grow and change and move on, which I just never thought I would. I was mm-hmm. so in the muck of it all. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so important. I'm so glad you're, you're sharing your story and your work. It's, it's really important. Thank you. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening. 